This is Brian Yothers, professor of English at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, the title of this talk is Disease and the Great American Novels, Herman Melville's Moby Dick and Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. In 1851 and 1852, Herman Melville and Harriet Beecher Stowe published two novels that, in very different ways, laid claim to constituting the center of the literary tradition of the United States. Melville's 1851 Moby Dick, after an initial reception that was mixed but more positive than popular mythology would have it, went into a long eclipse, only to emerge after the First World War as the book that most of the critics who established American literature as a university discipline regarded as the most important novel the 19th century United States had produced, and indeed as one of the great prose masterpieces in world literature. Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in 1851 to 1852 as a serialized novel in the national era, and then in book form in 1852, and it is routinely identified as the first true bestseller in American literature and as one of the most influential books of its time, contributing to the coming of the Civil War and the end of slavery in the United States. Its trajectory was a chiastic mirror image of that of Moby Dick, breathtakingly popular in its own time, frequently scorned by later generations as mere propaganda or sentiment prior to its recovery by feminist critics like Jane Tompkins as a rival to Moby Dick in the later 20th century. More than most books, we know what these two books are about, whether we have read them or not. Moby Dick is the difficult, artistically ambitious story of the mad Captain Ahab's single-minded pursuit of Moby Dick, the white whale who has taken his leg, and Uncle Tom's Cabin is a tale of the atrocities of slavery, written with the aim of ending slavery in the United States. It is easy to miss, however, the degree to which both of these novels are about the experience of disease and its personal and social effects in the 19th century U.S., it is easier still to forget the ways in which the history of disease in the 19th century U.S. shaped both of these novels. Indeed, it is fair to say that without the pandemics of the 19th century, neither of these foundational novels would exist, and certainly not in the form they ultimately took. The 19th century was shaken by repeated pandemics and by the recurrent of endemic diseases, yellow fever, scarlet fever, cholera, typhoid fever, measles, pertussis, influenza, typhus, malaria, syphilis, and tuberculosis, to name some of the most visible examples. Malnutrition was common among the urban and rural poor alike, and maternal deaths in childbirth and the death of children early in life were painfully common. A recent New York Times piece highlighted the extreme spikes in mortality that took place routinely in the 19th century. By comparison, even the deadly influenza epidemic of 1918 to 1920 and the terrorist attacks of 9-11 were blips on the timeline the New York Times created. Harriet Beecher Stowe was the older of the two authors I'm discussing in this talk, so I'll begin with her. She was born into an illustrious New England family, the Beechers, in Litchfield, Connecticut, on June 14, 1811. 
Her father, Lyman Beecher, was among the most influential Congregationalist ministers in early 19th century New England, and her mother, Roxana Foote Beecher, had acquired significant education even within the constraints on female education that applied in the late 18th century. Harriet's very name was a legacy of disease. She was the seventh child of Lyman and Roxana, and they had named their fifth child Harriet. The original Harriet fell ill with whooping cough, what we now know as pertussis, and vaccinated against along with tetanus and diphtheria as part of the Tdap vaccine at one month old, and she died shortly after contracting the disease. Thus, Harriet was named for an older sister who never had a chance to grow up and who was one of the many infants who died shortly after birth from infectious disease. So common was this outcome that 19th century poets almost invariably had poems in their body of work related to the death of an infant, with one of the most famous being Lydia Huntley Sigourney's The Death of an Infant. Sigourney's poem, widely beloved by those working through complex emotions of pain and loss, captured both the pain of the loss of a child and the consolations that many parents sought, and it is worth reading out in full. Quote, Death found strange beauty on that cherub brow and dashed it out. There was a hint of rose or cheek and lip. He touched the veins with ice and the rose faded. Forth from those blue eyes there spake a wistful tenderness, a doubt whether to grieve or sleep which innocence alone can wear. With ruthless haste he bound the silken fringes of their curtaining lids forever. There had been a murmuring sound with which the babe would claim its mother's ear, charming her even to tears. The spoiler set his seal of silence. But there beamed a smile so fixed and holy from that marble brow, death gazed and left it there. He dared not steal the signet ring of heaven." Sigourney captures the pain of loss and the strange beauty of the child who has been lost. How can the child seem so untouched by the ravages of disease, but nonetheless be dead? This context where childbirth walked hand in hand with the possibility of a child's death shaped both Stowe's life and her art. The other way in which death haunted childhood, of course, was through the premature death of a parent, and Harriet Beecher Stowe would experience this aspect of loss as well. Her own mother, Roxana, died in 1816 of tuberculosis while Harriet was still a small child. And so the woman who would become a central figure in both the history of the American novel and the history of the battle against slavery had her life reshaped by disease repeatedly by the time she was five years old. The most direct connection between disease and Stowe's career came later, however, during the deadliest pandemics to affect the United States during the 19th century. Cholera repeatedly ravaged major U.S. cities during the 1830s and 1850s, and when Cincinnati experienced a major outbreak at the start of the 1850s, Stowe experienced perhaps the most devastating loss of her life thus far. Her son, Charlie, whom she acknowledged to be her favorite child, became infected with cholera on July 10, 1849. Because the cholera epidemic in Cincinnati had already been spreading over the past month, and Stowe had even noted 116 deaths in one day late in the month, 
She was fearful even before her son's symptoms intensified six days later. By July 26th, he was dead, and Stowe was heartbroken. As Joan Hedrick movingly narrates in her biography of Stowe, the bereaved mother wrote that, quote, Never has he been anything to me but a comfort. He has been my pride and joy. Many a heartache has he cured for me. Many an anxious night have I held him to my bosom and felt the sorrow and loneliness pass out of me with the touch of his little warm hands. Yet I have just seen him in his death agony, looking on his imploring face when I could not help or soothe or do one thing, not one thing, to mitigate his cruel suffering. Do nothing but pray in my anguish that he might die soon. As Hedrick has pointed out, there is a direct line from Charlie's death to Stowe's composition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Stowe wrote her most famous novel after the death of her son, and it can be, as Hedrick shows, seen as a direct response to the death of her son, which Hedrick describes as, quote, one of the twin engines of Uncle Tom's Cabin, along with Stowe's, quote, white-hot anger against the slave system. The intersection of child loss and anti-slavery morality is expressed with a special power when the wife of a senator who has lost a child is moved to confront her husband about his temporizing attitude towards slavery when seeing Eliza, a formerly enslaved woman's devotion to her son, causes Mrs. Byrd, the senator's wife, to reflect on her own loss of a child. Cholera was a specific point of reference in numerous 19th century American literary works, notably Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, which many scholars of Poe's work agree was directly inspired by the cholera epidemic. The role of Charlie's death in shaping Uncle Tom's Cabin, however, may be the single most important way in which cholera shaped American literature. The portion of Uncle Tom's Cabin that is most directly engaged with disease is the story of the death of Eva St. Clair, who, along with the title character, is at the moral center of the novel. Both Eva and Uncle Tom are presented as figures of extraordinary virtue as defined by Stowe's increasingly liberal Protestantism, and in both cases, their virtuous and unselfish lives and deaths provide an irresistible rebuke to the selfishness and hatred that undergird racism and slavery. Stowe's account of Eva's decline emphasizes the sort of inevitability that those whose loved ones came down with a terminal disease could experience as the patient's condition declined. Quote, Eva, after this, declined rapidly. There was no more any doubt of the event. The fondest hope could not be blinded. Her beautiful room was avowedly a sick room, and Miss Ophelia day and night performed the duties of a nurse and never did her friends appreciate her value more than in that capacity. With so well-trained a hand and eye, such perfect adroitness and practice in every art which could promote neatness and comfort and keep out of sight every disagreeable incident of sickness, with such a perfect sense of time, such a clear, untroubled head, such exact accuracy in remembering every prescription and direction of the doctor's, She was everything to him. They who had shrugged their shoulders at her little peculiarities and setnesses, so unlike the careless freedom of Southern manners, acknowledged that now she was the exact person that was wanted. 
There are two pieces of the picture that Stowe creates here. The stricken child who forms such a central part of the 19th century literature of sentiment and the capable nurse. The response to tragedy for Stowe is the quality that she describes in another novel, The Minister's Wooing, the occasion for which was the death by drowning of another of Stowe's sons as faculty, the ability that Stowe attributes to women in particular to maintain emotional balance and competence in the midst of uncertainty and pain. Eva's death scene has frequently been ridiculed on the grounds of sentimentality, but as with the poem by Sigourney that I read earlier, it provided a means of accounting for the powerful emotions associated with the loss of a child. The child, quote, the child lay panting on her pillows as one exhausted, the large clear eyes rolled up and fixed. And what said those eyes that spoke so much of heaven? Earth was past an earthly pain, but so solemn, so mysterious was the triumphant brightness of that face that it choked even the sobs of sorrow. They pressed around her in breathless stillness. Eva, said St. Clair gently. She did not hear. Oh, Eva, tell us what you see. What is it? said her father. A bright, a glorious smile passed over her face, and she said brokenly, Oh, love, joy, peace, gave one sigh and passed from death unto life. This passage can clearly serve as an example of the trope of a beautiful death that many later critics have scorned, but it also dramatizes the emotional work of finding meaning in a sudden and seemingly random death caused by infectious disease. Eva has fallen sick suddenly in a New Orleans context in which various diseases were endemic, and the narrative that the other characters rely on is that she is too good for the world in which they must go on living. Infectious disease, as we have seen in our current pandemic, can strike suddenly and apparently senselessly, and an important part of the response to the contingency that we experience in the face of disease is the need to fit it into some larger narrative. Herman Melville's life and literary career was likewise shaped by the loss of a parent and a sibling to infectious disease. His father, Alan Melville, died when Herman was only 12 years old of a sudden respiratory infection that turned into pneumonia and left him not only physically but mentally incapacitated, with his brother observing that if he managed to survive, he might only be able to live as, quote, a maniac as Melville's biographer Herschel Parker has recounted, and Alan Melville died of his illness. Herman's brother Gansvort was both central to the launching of his literary career and the source of a painful loss at the outset of that career. Gansvort, a rising star in Democratic Party politics in the 1840s, became ill with a disease that still remains mysterious, but seems to have led to multiple organ failure in the course of several weeks. Just as Herman Melville was starting to realize his ambitions as a writer, he had to confront the loss of his beloved and admired older brother with a suddenness that paralleled the loss of his father. Five years after Gansford's death in May of 1846, Herman Melville would be working on Moby Dick, which he published in October and November 1851 in England and the United States. So, where do we find evidence of the shaping power of disease in Moby Dick? 
One place, surely, is the way in which Ishmael, Melville's narrator, reflects on the extreme precariousness of life in a chapter called The Lime. Quote, Again, as the profound calm which only apparently proceeds and prophesies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself, for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm and contains in itself as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder and the ball and the explosion, so the graceful repose of the line, as it silently serpentines about the oarsman before being brought into actual play, this is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men lived enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks, but it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than those seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a harpoon by your side. Here we see the way in which death can always be contained in the midst of life, as even the most mundane activities can conceal the germ, as it were, of calamity. More directly, disease and quarantine come into play on the sea itself when the Pequod meets a vessel, the Jeroboam, on which physical disease is rampant and mental illness has shaped its itinerary. Quote, it turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board and that Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Pequod's company. For though himself and the boat's crew remained untainted and though his ship was half a rifle shot off and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between them, yet conscientiously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he peremptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Pequod. Here the malignant epidemic provides the occasion for one of the most memorable scenes in the novel. The sailor Gabriel, who has come to believe himself to be an archangel, lectures Ahab and the Pequod's crew on the folly of pursuing the white whale. Throughout his career, Melville was attuned to the ways in which disease and its distribution reflected larger realities, what today we would call health disparities or inequities. In Taipei and Omu, he wrote angrily about the introduction of disease in the Pacific Islands. In Redburn, he wrote with heartbreaking pathos about the misery caused by hunger and malnutrition in 19th century Liverpool. This sensitivity to the interconnectedness of disease and identity appears in one of the most important plot devices in Melville's novel. As anyone who has read Moby Dick to its end knows, Ishmael is able to survive to tell his tale only because of Queequeg's earlier survival. Queequeg becomes desperately ill late in the novel, and he has a coffin made in which he lies down to die. Unexpectedly, Queequeg recovers after he remembers that he still has responsibilities to perform on Earth, an apparent triumph, at least according to Queequeg, of mind over matter. 
This points up another crucial dimension to the role that disease plays throughout Melville's novel. Although physical epidemics help drive the action at various points, the novel is crucially shaped by disease of the mind, as moody, stricken Ahab, crazy Ahab, drives the plot of Moby Dick as a whole with his quest to destroy the whale, a quest that brings together physical and mental anguish. The closing of Moby Dick, while not directly about disease, perhaps provides the most compact model of how disease shapes both Stowe's and Melville's work. Quote, buoyed up by that coffin for almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks, they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children, only found another orphan. Lost parents and lost children, the inevitability of loss and the inexplicability of where it might strike, all come together in creating one of the most memorable conclusions in all of American literature. When teaching the literature of the 19th century United States, I stress the degree to which mortality is always present to the writers we study and the characters they create. Melville's Moby Dick and Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin underscore the degree to which the literature of the 19th century United States exists in dialogue with disease and mortality.